0: This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. Last week on the program, we spoke with Dr. Edward Tam of the Lair Center in Vancouver about a pilot program in British Columbia to identify, treat, and cure hepatitis C in vulnerable populations. If you missed that program, you can go back to last week's program, go to Apple iTunes. It's on the podcast, and you can learn all about hepatitis C and why it's important that we treat hepatitis C and who is at risk for hepatitis hepatitis C and how many people in Canada have hepatitis C. And there's a lot of people who in Canada who actually have hepatitis C, but are asymptomatic. So they have no symptoms. And so that can be problematic, especially because there's a stigma associated with this. So it's all that information is on last week's, but this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the actual program itself. So I've invited Dr. Tam back to talk about the actual program, this very innovative program for vulnerable or priority populations. Thanks so much for coming back this week to this Sunday Night Health Show, Dr. Tam. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about how this program is going to work.
1: Great. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me back. Uh, I'd love to tell you a little bit about it. Um, so, you know, in, in my clinic at Lair Center, I'm a hepatologist there, so I'm seeing uh, liver disease on a day-in, day-out basis and certainly see individuals and treat individuals with hepatitis C. But working towards this goal of hep C elimination for 2030, I think what we're coming to recognize is that not everybody affected by this condition is able to uh, come to see a specialist or it, perhaps it's not a comfortable situation for them. And what we're looking at in this pilot project is uh, I'm working with a colleague of mine, Jay Wartman, He's a family physician who also has uh, expertise in addictions medicine. And at uh, one of his clinics, a rural clinic, he sees a lot of individuals who he's treating for their addiction, for their opiate use disorder, and he's prescribing opiate agonist therapy for them. We know that this population that he's seeing um, does have a high percentage of individuals also who are affected by hepatitis C. So what we're hoping to do is to really nail down and identify the proportion of individuals who are affected and rather than asking them uh, to come see a liver specialist such as myself, really what we'd like to do is to build that expertise within Dr. Wartman's practice so he's able to see these individuals whom he's already had a good therapeutic relationship identified and um, established and so what we'd like to do is to build his expertise to treat and cure these individuals.
0: That's fantastic and so the power of one essentially. So we start with Dr. J. Wartman and then are you hoping to spread this information through to other GPs and family docs and nurse practitioners throughout British Columbia and eventually Canada?
1: Uh, absolutely. And I mean, when you look at what's happening in Canada, right you know, we're seeing this happen on other levels. So this is a little pilot project out here that we're looking at, you know, so-called micro elimination within Dr. Orman's practice. Of course, there are other physicians in the province who prescribe opiate agonist therapy who are beginning to treat hepatitis C. And what we'd love to do is just to try to encourage this to happen more and more. And I think if we're involving more and more individuals in the treatment, in primary care, whether that's nurse practitioners, whether it's family physicians, whether it's physicians that focus on addictions medicine, this is how gradually we're going to chip away at the epidemic and really reach our goal of eliminating it by 2030.
0: And that relationship between patient and doctor is so important. And oftentimes, uh, many Canadians, many British Columbians, complain uh, that it's very difficult to find a family doctor. And especially for somebody with hepatitis C virus infection, it would be extremely difficult not to have a good rapport, as you mentioned, with their family doctor. And so this would be one of the barriers to treatment, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely, and I think increasingly we recognize, that, you know, from a physician perspective, what works for me or what works for, uh, you know, another uh, one of my colleagues might not work for the patient. And I think when you think about, you know, an epidemic like hepatitis C and the, uh, you know, the goal of eliminating it, we have to recognize that uh, the epidemic is diverse and there's a lot of, of different individuals who are affected uh, by this condition. And if we can start tailoring care so that we can serve people the way that works best for them, I think that's really how we're gonna uh, you know get where we need to be in a number of years.
0: I agree. And so, under your pilot program, it's my understanding that you will be screening about one hundred and seventy patients. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Dr. Wartman has about 170 individuals in care at his clinic at Royal Oak, and we've already started and almost completed the screening phase. And so what we've had is kind of an individual, a patient navigator at his clinic to help do point of care testing for hepatitis C uh, in the clinic. And that's a simple test that can be done, you know, when they're seeing him for a routine visit. And what we found so far is that in his practice, uh, approximately 40% of individuals have identified as hepatitis C positive after a screening test. And, of course, that percentage would differ dependent on the location and the practice that you're looking at. But, you know, it's it's a significant number. And so now we're just starting to move into the next phase, which is essentially um, establishing um, what we're using as a, a care model to build his expertise in hep C treatment. And what we're using is something called ECHO, or Extension for Community Health Outcomes. This is a program that started down, actually, at University of New Mexico, Uh, by Dr. Sanjeev Arora who essentially wanted to look at the delivery of care in hepatitis C and how specialist centers could essentially through tele-mentorship, build expertise in the community. So rather than having everybody come down to a single center or to a group of centers, uh, you know, that are so-called specialized centers, want to build the expertise in the community. And so what we're doing now um, between myself and Dr. Warman is we are connecting the um, video conference on a weekly basis to discuss clinical issues around hepatitis C. And as he builds that expertise, he'll be able to treat the epidemic and and take care of hepatitis C curative treatment for those individuals that he's already seen.
0: That's amazing because in his clinic alone, if my math is correct, 68 patients have been identified as hepatitis C positive after screening. That's a lot of people who are going to prevent um, liver disease, liver cancer, cirrhosis of the liver, and potentially a liver transplant. So that's, that's yeah, tremendous. And the population here, baby boomers, it's also my understanding that there is an increased incidence in baby boomers. So people born between 1945 and
1: 1975? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's just a great message to get out, get out there in the public. You know, when you're thinking about a condition such as hepatitis C, sometimes it's easy to forget that, you know, populations who are affected by this are wide-reaching. And anybody... Born between 1945 and 1975 in Canada is recommended to have a one time test for hepatitis C. And that is irrespective of any other identifiable risk factors for hep C. Just if you were born between 45 and 75, so if there's people listening and they don't know their hep C status and they were born between 1945 and 1975, great conversation to have. Uh, with your family physician,
0: and we're talking about forty-four year olds, and forty-eight year olds, and fifty-two year olds. And Absolutely, this is a, you got it. This is yeah. a middle-aged disease potentially
1: for many people. Yeah, for for sure. And um, you know, when you actually look uh, in Canada at you know, the, the demographics of individuals who are affected, you know, a large proportion are captured in that 1945 to 1975 birth cohort. And it's surprising for a lot of individuals, you know, when I when I tell them that, or even if I'm chatting with uh, primary care physician uh, colleagues, you know, I try to get that message out to there because I think it's important. And the reason it's important to test is because it's simple and you can do something about it, right? Hep C is curable, so you want to know if you have it so you can get cured and you then sure you don't do. have to work.
0: Yeah, how do people get it? And- I know there are certainly vulnerable populations or priority Mm -hmm.
1: populations. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the risk factors, certainly um, uh, when you look at new infections, currently that's mostly happening in individuals who currently use or currently inject drugs. But certainly what we see is a a higher proportion of immigrants and newcomers uh, may be affected. And usually we would attribute that to coming from a place where hepatitis C is more common and potentially non-sterile medical procedures. Uh, In addition, of course, we've heard about um, uh, tainted blood and certainly having a blood transfusion in the past, certainly before 1992 would put an individual at risk. And when you think about that baby boomer population, the fact is sometimes Uh, those individuals really have no identifiable risk factors, and yet uh, we do identify a high proportion of individuals. So we think about risk factors, but also we understand that sometimes You will sit down and talk to somebody. You go through their whole medical history. You cannot identify a risk factor, and yet you test them, and they have hep C. And for me, understanding that just magnifies the importance of considering, you know, screening um, uh, people for this condition.
0: Well, fantastic information. Thank you so much, Dr. Tam of Layer Center in Vancouver. Best of luck with your pilot project, and I would love to have you back on uh, once you've completed screening and enrollment and treatment uh, and learn more about it and spread the information not the disease.
1: Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to chat with you. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you.
0: This is Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We have a few famous moms in the world recently, and that is the comedian Amy Schumer. A huge, I'm a huge fan of hers. And Meghan Markle as well. And both of those ladies used doulas for their Uh, pregnancy and their birth and delivery and postpartum and nary life choma is a seasoned birth doula and childbirth educator of 20 years she is author of the art of coaching for childbirth and founder of birth coach method a continuing education provider for birth support professionals and obstetric nurses and she joins me on the line from california right now hello nary Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm delighted to have you because I think this is an important role for women, for pregnant women, especially in today's world where we may be living apart from families and we may not have the support. We're disconnected in so many ways. And this is a way to connect. How would you describe the role of a doula?
2: Well, the definition, um, by definition, doulas are non-medical professionals trained to provide physical, emotional, and informational support for expectant couples during childbirth. We learn traditional modalities of maternal care along with the current understanding of the physiology, anatomy, and the unfolding of birth process. Um, I like what you said about the connection We begin supporting our clients at home and transfer with them to the hospital if this is where they wish to give birth. Historically, the profession emerged as the solution to the problematic transition from a home-based birth to hospital birth with the idea of trying to conserve some of the continuous support offered to women by their local community during childbirth. It, um, it was really meant to soften this transition and fill the gap of having personalized care um, given by women you trust, by a woman that you trust and that you have relationship with. And, um, and one more thing about the emergence of yes.
0: No, go ahead. J- j- one
2: more thing to say about the emergence of doulas and childbirth educators, um, especially with. Um, Um, The fact that you named, you know, a few celebrities that are using doulas. Um, Well, historically, we were associated with a natural birth movement and with uh, facilitating unmedicated birth. But I'd like to bring awareness to the fact that this is no longer the case. The most significant change that I see um, being a doula of 20 years in um, the clients who hire us nowadays is that the majority of them are not committed to the idea of natural childbirth. And uh, will rather talk about healthy and positive experience in which they feel that they have someone taking care of them and attending to their personal needs. So we are supporting birthing mothers regardless of their pain management preferences. And we're being guided by um, a huge commitment to increasing rates of
0: vaginal
2: healthy birth.
0: Fantastic. Now, now someone like Meghan Markle, I'm certain has um, many servants surrounding her and also a large supportive family. (laughs) Amy Schumer has her sister that she's very close to and her parents um, and lots of friends that she's named, but they both chose to have a doula. So how does a doula support a client through pregnancy and the birth process, the labor and delivery and postpartum? Tell us more about that process
2: um so the process begins at home um traditionally we were trained to have only two meetings maybe three with the couple prior to the birth uh getting to know them introduce ourselves our skills what we do the benefits there are lots of statistics about benefits of doulas Um, and then we are on call for our clients 24 7 which is um, one of the hardest things to do and um growing alertness from two weeks prior to their estimated due date, you know, so they can wake me up in the middle of the night with the onset of their labor. We come to their home during birth and begin providing our support. When it comes to the physical support we provide, um, it entails um, leading the mothers with breathing techniques, uh, vocalization, visualization, relaxation techniques, massaging in acupressure points, um hydrotherapy, um, making suggestions regarding labor positions and when to leave the home and head the hospital if they do um, we work with mainly I would say we work with two ideas main goals in mind one is to help our clients cope and the other is to help make progress in the birth because they're losing stamina and we know that birth should you know take place in a timely manner then there is the emotional support that we provide Um, this could be described as reassuring reassuring that everything is healthy and normal we encourage we we contain the mother's emotional reaction to her birth we're not afraid and we aren't alarmed by labor pain which is going to be probably very different than the partner the parents the sister-in-laws the friends and, and the servants that you were referring to, and the, the community that is supporting, because they are all going to be alarmed by labor pain. We live in a culture that is um, geared or focused on alleviating pain. We actually perceive it as a healthy component of childbirth. And this perspective helps the mother to be with labor pain and accept it, not trying to reject it or run away from this with a flight of fight response, and we help parents also understand the process and make informed decisions once um, they need to take decisions.
0: Exactly. Um, Yes, my servants weren't very aware of my acute pain during labor, (laughs) either. Oftentimes, yeah. oftentimes it can be the, yeah. the father or the person in the life or the, you know, somebody's yeah. wife that says, you're not ready to go. We don't want to get turned yeah. back. So you kind of take the lead and, and can guide the, the future mom as well as their partners or whomever is in the room, yeah. as you say. Yeah. So how is the coaching approach yeah. to birth support that you have developed different than the doula support or the childbirth mm-hmm. educator role?
2: So um, being a doula of 20 years, you know, and being trained that um, um, my most um, important asset is, you know, the continuous support that I provide, um, at some point I just um, felt totally burned out and totally exhausted. And one of the reasons was that whatever um, prophecy, you know, or promise that doula support um, was supposed to bring to expected couples wasn't really met because a growing number of my clients or even uh, people who didn't hire me as a it, but I led thousands in child education classes, meeting them in reunions and hearing about experiences that are so different than the ones that they envisioned and desired for themselves, and not being able to close this gap between what clients say that they want and what they hope for and their wishes and the unfolding of the actual birth and how things went. That led me you know, to question myself and to doubt. And then I was trying to have a career change that ended up with me just integrating a new profession, which is the coaching, um, into birth support. And the major difference is, um, Well, there are a few, but I want to talk especially about the prenatal coaching support that is that helps us tailor the support to the individual. So by providing a series of prenatal support sessions, um, prenatal prenatal coaching sessions, the coach can actually clarify the client's thoughts, their beliefs, uh, to identify areas of challenge and strength. Um, to help distinguish truth from myth and fears from reality. And everything is led by the coachee, by the client, by what she has in mind. And to overall um, facilitate a stronger alignment between the couple's beliefs, their vision for their birth, and the actions that they take towards fulfilling those visions. We do have studies showing us, studies that started with Penny Simkin, which I consider the big teacher of all doulas. And she was telling us that woman's satisfaction with her birth experience doesn't rely really on the unfolding of the birth, but instead on how she feels that she was conducting herself or in coaching words, it's going to be performing during the birth and how she felt that she was treated. And there is no better way that I know to lead individuals to optimally perform in any area of challenge in their life than coaching. And in my opinion, coaching is also the, the pathway to leading patient-centered care that we're really trying to achieve in labor and delivery. And I think that this is why the healthcare system was embracing my, um, my philosophy of coaching for childbirth. And um, I now teach actually nurses, obstetric nurses, to integrate coaching
0: into birth support. This is fantastic, and thank you so much for a great introduction to uh, doula and doula support, childbirth coaching, and education, and I'd love to have you back and talk about more. Where can people learn about your services?
2: Oh, um, I have a website, uh, birthcoachmethod.com. They can um, go and learn about the philosophy, about the book, about our new course, um, Coaching for Pregnancy and Birth, Um, webinars that I've led in the past um, and other programs that are all continuing education for uh, birth support professionals that are not medically trained and for obstetric nurses.
0: Hi, this is Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am joined in studio by Megan Gilron. She has a sexual health background. She is also a sexual intimacy coordinator on TV, films, and other stage productions. And uh, she joins me in studio this evening. Thank you so much for coming into the studio and such interesting work and intimacy coordinator for stage productions and movies and TV. Mm-hmm. What drives you? What led you to seek out this career? This career that has actually been born out of the Me Too movement, I might add.
3: Thank you, yeah. Um, I I have a background in theater, uh, doing costume design predominantly. I went to UBC here in, in Vancouver um, with a costume design degree, uh, and then I started to get into the wardrobe with with TV and film because I was told there was a great need for that as well. Um, and I also on the on the other side of that, um, I also um, uh, I'm self identified as a sex sex educator. Um, I'm actually currently attending the Options for Sexual Health, uh, which is a Planned Parenthood uh, Canadian affiliate. Uh, they're uh, they're sexual health educator certification program, Um, and I've been (laughs) a youth facilitator with Safe Teen uh, International for four years now. So as a youth facilitator, a sexual health educator, and then um, my experience already with film and TV, it kind of just was like, wow, where can all these things coalesce and how can I find a place for all of these things kind of in one job or one career? Um, So that's how it brought me to intimacy coordinating, yeah. And
0: and that's fantastic, and that's great that you brought your sexual health education background along Mm. with your experience in film and TV, you know, brought it together to um, educate people because there's such a tremendous need. I I realize that myself in my work. I'm a nurse continence advisor. I'm a registered nurse. I'm a sexual health educator. And I was telling somebody recently that I actually started this work with um, men with spinal cord injury who were having sexual health issues but also dealing with women who were leaking urine and having bladder and bowel health issues mm. and so but then i realized that the people that had bladder and bowel health issues had sexual health issues and those that had uh, sexual health issues also had bladder and bowel issues so
3: there's an interconnection. There's such things. an interconnection.
0: Yeah. It's a long way to get to where I got to. What I what I <laughs> lack is the film and TV experience, mm. but I'm still working on it. Yeah, no. yeah. Um, So who would know that this is needed in the film industry? Who even thinks of that?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, Tonya Sinas, Siobhan Richardson, and Alicia Rodas, and um, they often come from a choreographer's background, directing background, acting background. So personal experience gave them the knowledge that this is needed. I was put in a room and told, go, um, you know, figure out this making out scene, Uh, come back and show us what you've done, right? And so you're asking the actors to remove themselves from the rehearsal space and go into a private space to do this thing. I also had similar experience when I was a teen and I was in Romeo and Juliet and uh, I was told to, you know, kiss the actor and things didn't always go the way that it was rehearsed. And and how hard is that? How difficult?
0: I'm always talking on this program about sexual connection and Mm -hmm. chemistry and attraction. Mm-hmm. So how difficult it's like, I imagine it's like being in school and, you know, in a play and when you're five, you know, in the fifth grade or something, mm-hmm, and it's like, you're mm-hmm. supposed to hold the hand of this most <laughs> unpopular, unattractive looking kid in the whole class that creeps you out. Yeah. Uh, how difficult is it to make out with somebody that you're not attracted to? And, and can you separate yeah. yourself or compartmentalize there?
3: Yes, and so that's one of the exercises that we do with the actors Um, when we set up uh, a tone of we're we're in this moment together. Uh, we, We do a bracketing system so we tag in we do a high 10 we create a threshold so this new space where now they can perform as characters um, and it's a safer space for them to expand we also do like a a check-in with consent so we stand in front of each other we say okay today I'm fine for touching on the arms touching of the breasts maybe not the nipples um, down the body uh, no crotch area or genitals but I'm happy for you to touch my legs my back my butt so that we have that blanket consent and we know that when we're rehearsing we don't have to constantly have have that voice in the back of our heads. It's like, oh, does she think more because I've grabbed her this way or a little bit too low this way? So it's, it's to help create that parentheses within which they can perform that. And then when they're done, they can leave that behind. Uh, they can sort of leave that hologram of themselves as the character and then go home.
0: Right. Yeah. Very interesting. You wouldn't think about that, and yeah. I guess that dictates or determines the how that scene is actually eventually going to play out because it changes mm-hmm. every day, and I imagine mm-hmm. consent changes every day as well. As you say, yeah. somebody has to be comfortable with a, um, a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, has to be comfortable, uh, you know. Acting something out, and that may change from Tuesday to Friday for yeah. that person.
3: And as intimacy coordinators, when I'm when I'm with my uh, when I'm working in in duo with somebody, we also model it. So we show them, mm-hmm. look, this is a way we can be comfortable. I might ask the actor to model it with them outside of the context of acting. Look, it is actual choreography. We're gonna we're gonna decide what the movements are, and then you're gonna fill it in with emotion later, so that it it separates those two things. I imagine it's mm-hmm. tremendous
0: work. It's very interesting work. I imagine we'll see some uh, intimacy coordinator programs coming out Mm -hmm. of some of the colleges and universities. That would be great. (laughs) Yeah, safe teen. Uh, Thank you so much, intimacy coordinator. We'll love to have you back and talk about some of these, um, you know, some of these sex scenes as well. Anyway, and if you want to have a sex scene in your own home, well, hey, that would be fun too. Uh, Remember, (laughs) consent is critical. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network.